I'm Steve Backshaw, and you're listening to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Hey guys, welcome to the Aussie Wildlife Show. Adrian here, and I'm here, of course, with Steve. Good day, guys. And we're very lucky today to have with us Dr. Kath Kemper, Senior Researcher of Mammals from the South Australian Museum. Welcome, Kath. Howdy. Kath, I've known you for a lot of years. We've been out in the field collecting animals and learnt so much from the time with you, and it's great to have you on the show because you are a wealth of information. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. What does it mean to be a to be a researcher in charge of mammals here? What does that job entail? Well, it has changed quite a bit over the 35 or 36 years that I've been here. Um, initially, I was more involved with the collection, like day-to-day with the collection. So the collection is basically a bunch of specimens and we do all kinds of things with the information and those specimens Um, but in the last say 10 or 15 years I've stepped back a little bit from the day-to-day of the collection and concentrated a bit more on the sort of the higher order researchy sort of things and um, promoting what we have so okay now I've seen a lot of the specimens uh, that that are kept here and I know that you're interested in marine mammals. Obviously, whales get beached. Where, where are those sorts of things stored here? Are they stored here? Uh, well, they're stored at Bolivar, actually. Is that right? Although some parts of them, so say the genetics parts of them, so say little bits of tissue that are frozen for genetics or put into alcohol, they're kept here with the evolutionary biology in it. So we collect them, we hand them on to them, and they then deal with them, if you like. Um, and say the reproductive organs or the stomach contents, they're held here in the Science Centre on North Terrace. But the bigger bones and things are out at Bolivar. So they have a, a big shed where they're stored. Is that they're, right? They're too big for here. There's just a big shed with wild pieces. Yeah. All, or- all organised, <laughs> though. But, you know, so a little bit of the, the history of this, that collection not the size that it is now, mind you, was stored in rented storage in various places around the city, Kent Town, Hindmarsh, must have been some other places before my time, and then it went to Bolivar in 1996. So we're lucky because now it's in our own building and we have control of it. It was kind of hard before. It's in the one place. Yeah, it's in the one place. And also it's right next door to where the animals are prepared. So they're macerated, the skeletons are prepared. So that's a lot easier than trying to cart a blue whale skeleton or whatever from one part of Adelaide to another. (laughs) Much easier. They're big animals, I mean. Mm. What what is something like a a big wild way? Oh, gosh. So a blue whale, uh, maybe 180 tons, (laughs) you know, metric tons. Yeah, yeah. it's a completely different way of dealing with the big, medium to big things as it is with the dolphins. So the dolphins we tend to get here and we do them, well, here as in Bolivar, you know, in Adelaide, whereas the bigger things we need to do them on the beach usually. So if an animal beaches itself, you get a call and there's a process involved. And do we know why these animals beach themselves? Well, a whole bunch of reasons. Okay. <laughs> and it depends on each individual case. So in South Australia, we have very few what they call mass strandings. So a mass stranding is basically anything more than three individuals. Um, And those species that mass strand, say sperm whales, pilot whales, false killer whales, they are deep water 
highly social species. So they're really attached to other members of their group, you know, psychologically, I guess. And so if something happens to one or two of them and, and they beach themselves, whether they're not well or they're injured or they made a mistake and went the wrong way, then the rest of them tend to follow because they have this an incredible herd herding instinct. Whereas most of the species um, aren't like that. So they will strand, say, for our South Australian ones, as one animal or maybe a mum and a calf um, might come up. And often the animals are dead already, so they're actually not stranding per se. They're washing up, but we, in science, we call that a stranding. So when I say stranding, I mean in a very broad sense. Just found on the beach. Found on the beach or floating in the water or whatever it might be, yeah. Sometimes they're found alive, aren't they, where they... Yes, so we would call that a live stranding. That makes sense. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Run that by me again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, We've been hearing a lot about the seismic testing that's going to be happening in the bite. Is that something that's going to affect some of these whales that use sonar? We don't really know. It's not an area of my specialty. Um, There are some places in the world that have done little sort of experiments, if you like, and had seismic operating and then they observe whales uh, and see what the reaction is. But it's very tricky because you have baleen whales that could be affected. You have toothed whales and dolphins. They're the ones that use echolocation. So they perhaps would be the more affected. Um, It depends on how close the animal is to the source of the sound, but there's, it's really, it's very difficult to know what really is happening. But uh, I'm very keen on conservation in what I do, and a lot of what I do hopefully helps conservation, even though the animals are dead. What we learn from them as dead animals helps conserve them because we don't know so much you know, about them when they're alive. Um, in science, we would say it's better to use the precautionary principle. So that means that if there is any possibility that there could be an effect, then Um, industry or government or whatever should be very cautious about what they allow to be done. And conservation is a big part of what drives you to do your job, I'd imagine. It is. Um, I've always been that way and uh, a lot of the things I, I research are fairly basic in some ways in, in that I'm not testing scientific principles. I'm more describing for example, um, some of the work I've done on dolphins has been when males and females are mature, sexually mature. This is very important information. If we want to conserve even the common dolphins that are out there, we need to know whether there is a chance that in a hundred years or a thousand years that those animals or that population may not exist. And so they have these fancy models, which I don't do, but the people who do the models need that basic information, like when do they mature? How many calves do they have in their lifetime? When they die, etc. And that gets all fed into how many they know are there, 
and they feed in all of these other uh, bits of information and they work out, okay, that species is going to be gone in 100 years. And they've actually done this with some of the North American dolphins, the vaquita, and it's probably next to extinct. And they knew that, but, you know, they're in this bind. It's in the Gulf of Mexico, Baja, California. And um, they knew that there was this issue because the local fishermen um, were catching them illegally not illegally, incidentally, in their nets. But what do you do? you got humans needing to make a living, you know, but it was all just too late. And what I think we're trying to do here in Australia is not let it get so late. So provide um, governments um, with information that allows them to make those assessments. Mm. It's such a tricky thing, isn't it? We hear scientists all the time talking about their research and what we need to do as a population to protect the environment, and we see the governments doing what they want to do, and it's often very different. It must be frustrating at times. Extremely. I, I vacillate between being angry about the way things are going and wanting to still fight, and, uh, yeah, just, I guess, it depends on how tired I am on the day or whatever, or whatever's <laughs> happened. Um, but, you know, we have these issues in the terrestrial environment, so, like, on land, that more and more vegetation is being cleared. And how can animals exist, not just mammals, uh, you know, invertebrates, birds? We hear about the decline of woodland birds around the Adelaide region, and it's partly because of clearing of vegetation and climate change I suppose is having some effect as well really happy to hear you say that we always try to talk about the habitat the animals come from and I think a lot of people get very animal focused and they want to raise a kangaroo and do all these things to help the environment but which is great don't get me wrong but it you know we've got to start at the foundation at the habitat so that's good to hear you say that and I knew you felt like that so it's good well and another thing that I think people have to keep in mind, and I'm not telling how people should think, but they have to be aware. Are they interested in the life of every individual? Or are they interested in conserving populations and species? And sometimes it comes down to that. I mean, you could even argue that maybe it comes down to that with humans as well. That sounds really tough. No, go for it. But <laughs> it has to be said nowadays, I think. Yeah. Mm. Got to be well, there are too many there. humans. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's really yeah. the basis to all of this is there are too many humans. Yeah, we've talked about we've had uh, We've done two episodes about human population. Um, and we had Michael Bayliss and we had uh, James Ward on talking about population. So, And they were episodes just about human population, which has everything to do with wildlife. Mm. And... Um, mm. And I think David Attenborough came out and said it, and seeing him say it now, because obviously, as you know, I talk at schools and things about the environment, and gives me the power to go out and say, well, if he said it, I can say it. And we, we need to say it. We're, we're at plague proportions. Mm. Um, but it does come down a lot to governments, because governments are still pushing for population growth in a lot of places, and I don't really understand. We don't completely understand why. We have a feeling, you know, it's, it's a business, I, I think guess, it's Western economics. Mm. And until we give up Western economics, not that I'm an economist, but to me the, the crux is it's Western economics and it's all about growth. And that means growth in terms of people, human numbers, so that they can do the things that 
so that businesses, say, can do the things they want to do and grow. Yeah. And until we deal with that, I don't think it's going to go away. Everyone wants to play with bigger figures. Mm-hmm. Sad. Yeah. Um, do you get any... Uh, talking about obviously when a species is found a, a specimen all the specimens come here it's like a repository for what's out there well not all of them not do all. okay mm. we do have to sometimes say we have enough of this kind of whale <laughs> 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 because we've got no room or or no money to go out and collect it or or we've run out of energy or whatever so a good example is say for sperm whales so we've got a reasonable number of full skeletons of sperm whales now so because they're a big whale and and we do get them fairly often on our coast um, we would maybe try and get a few teeth from one so an object part of that animal that still is then a specimen in the museum without having the full thing makes sense that's a um is a sperm whale in the foyer here at the museum there are two yeah there's a there's one that was collected in 1880 Eight. Eight, no, 84 or 83, I we should know this. <laughs> yeah, in, in the 1880s yeah. at uh, Point Bolingbroke, just north of Port Lincoln. They're a massive animal. Mm. Well, that, that's one of the biggest, actually. We estimated that animal must have been about 18 metres, which is the maximum. Okay. Mm. So you started off interested in terrestrial mammals. What got you into these marine mammals? Well... In the 1980s, when I'd come to the museum in 83, and I was sort of feeling my way. So I didn't know South Australia very well, so I went on on lots of um, field trips with the parks guys, and we had a wonderful time. So I really got to know the state. And then, sort of towards the late 1980s, several things happened. One is, one of my bosses at the time said, Kath, I think you're fiddling around too much. You're sort of you're not you're not taking on anything and really going for it. You, I was fluffing around basically, I guess, feeling my way around South Australia. Um, so that happened, and then I was put in charge of Bolivar, where we keep all our whales and dolphins, and we have the preparation facility out there. And we moved the collection. Um, or we had to sort through the collection. I think it went from Kent down to Hindmarsh at that time, and it was in a terrible mess. It wasn't all that big. Maybe there was about 300 or so individual specimens. It's now up to, uh, for cetacean, for whales and dolphins, it's about 1,400 or something like that. Wow. But because each of them is pretty big, it was you know, a massive effort over the last 30 years. So in, in doing that, going through the collection I had to learn a lot about things that I knew nothing about how to identify the bones of marine mammals because I'd not been exposed to that side of the study of mammals. So those things kind of all came together about the same time and there was nobody in Australia specializing in museum sort of whale and dolphin side of things. So there was a niche and that's where the advice from my boss at the time was very good. So Basically, I just went for it. And we had the facilities to do it. We had a reasonable reputation, even though the collection was small. And, yeah, and things just went from there. Went from there. So someone's got a whale bone and you don't need it. What happens with that? Well, if if they've got a whale, we do get quite a few things, like photographs especially with digital, right? People don't tend to bring things in too much now. They send you a picture. And I say, oh, can you put a scale in there so I can see how big this thing is? 
So I do a fair bit of identifying that way. Um, if it's from something that I think is uh, interesting enough for us to keep, um, then I say, would you mind donating it to the museum? So I've got a good example, actually. Just recently, I got a photograph from a chap of a, a, a scapula, so a, um, a shoulder blade of a, a large whale, and it came from Gulwa. And it's very, very old, so it's at least 70 years old. So that means it's pre-modern sort of right whale. So I identified it as a right whale, because that was reasonably easy. So I thought, hmm, this, it's kind of falling apart, but we can maybe consolidate it. It's important because some scientists who do genetic work are trying to work out, is there a difference in the genetics of the modern right whales since they've been recovering, say, 1970 onwards, or, or these older whales that were around for a long time after being hammered by whaling, basically. Mm. So they can get genetic material out of some of these bones. I'm not sure that whether this one is gonna provide great material because it's, uh, you know, it's very friable. It's been in the sun for, you know, probably a hundred years or something like that. So that's a good example of somebody contacting us, wanting to know what the identity of the bone is um, and whether we wanted it. So I said, yes, please. I understand that. Um, just getting back to terrestrial mammals, Australia's got a really bad mammal extinction rate, as we all know and we keep hearing about. Um, and South Australia, I believe, has the worst of that again. Um, and your role is to manage all these mammal specimens. It, it, is there any good news that you can share with us? <laughs> Are we talking about terrestrial here or marine? Oh, either way. Okay, well, I'll give you a, a marine example is the right whale, actually. So right whales are increasing because of all of the work that's been done by many scientists at 6 to 7% per annum in Australia. And that's sort of about the same for the rest of the Southern Hemisphere. So we know that. So the, the biggest issue that right whales had was whaling, but there are other issues they, they also have. Um, on the terrestrial front, I have, I have mixed feelings about reintroductions. Reintroductions into um, fenced areas are good if it looks like that's the only way of doing it, um, because there are certainly some things that have been brought, say, from Western Australia, so, for example, the Numbat, so gone from South Australia, but bring in some from WA. I think that also spreads the risk a little bit in terms of if something happened to all the WA ones, at least they're in these, um, these um, reintroduction areas. However, my worry, I have two worries. One is that it's a lot of money that goes into these reintroductions and it almost gives humans a bit of an out. So they can say, oh, that's all right. You know, they're doing all right in there. Or, you know, they, they feel like they don't have to do any more. And some of us, Mark included actually, Mark Hutchinson would say, can't we put more time and effort into what we know is left as wild animals out there? 
so, yeah, actually, Mark did, did touch on that too. Um, so, so managing the ecosystem that those animals live in, no more clearing of those areas, yeah. controlling ferals would be a, a part yeah. of Yeah. Oh, don't get me started on cats. <laughs> <laughs> Go. Go. <laughs> okay, so predators are now probably quite important for those animals, little and fluffy things that are left out there. However, it is such a complex scenario, this um, extinctions and, and reductions in numbers of animals, so that my concern with the cat thing is, again, people are thinking that the cats are responsible for all of this well, they're not responsible for all of it. And don't kid yourself, people up there, because it is what we are doing, building our houses in a little bit of bush. And of course, to do that, you have to clear the trees because of fire risk and all of that stuff. So not a good idea to have feral cats, I agree. But to blame everything, to, to, to focus all of this um, energy and angst on feral cats, I think, is distracting from the bigger issue, which Mark and I would say is protect the habitat. I mean, still do the the feral control, but um, yeah, don't think that cats are or foxes. That's very interesting. There was a, a the top ten invasive species in Australia came out as a report recently, and humans weren't on there. <laughs> well, <laughs> a lot of I people... think somebody better redo that yeah. list. No, we're cane toads. Yeah, the, the number one, really? in fact, was rabbits. Yeah, um, but rab- rabbits came in as number one, and well, yeah, because they destroy the vegetation and the habitat, mm-hmm. which is what we're talking about. Um, number two was phytophthora. Oh yeah, because of course that's getting the plants, which then the animals rely on. Mm. Mm. So there's a theme there. Just as soon as I understand what that word was, you said it's a like it's like a fungus. It's very species specific, and it can take out some santhereas and some eucalyptus. Mm. It came in into Western Australia on a cinnamon plant. That's so Phytophthora cinnamoni. Yeah. Wow. That's it. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, can we are we allowed to talk about some of the the taxonomic changes? Like, am I allowed to understand that Macropus has just been smashed around a bit? Oh, that's only names. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> it's the, not, it's not that we've yep. found any new species okay. or we've lumped any species together. It's, and I'm not, I'm not bagging this because somebody has to do this in order to keep the science you know, neat and tidy and the naming neat and tidy. But what um, Jackson and Groves did, publication came out about four years ago or five, they looked at the history of the naming of all Australian mammal species. And like Stephen was really amazing how much detail. He would spend, you know, years going through, you know, little notes here and there and publications here and there. And so he came up with a revised naming system for, for example, the some of the kangaroos. So he went back to using a genus which is the first part of a scientific name. So the scientific name has two parts to it, two words in it. The first is called the genus and the second is the species name. So they've basically gone back to the use of the, the first time something was, a species was described and they've used that genus. That's basically it. 
Okay. Is that, that's what. Did they have any reason for doing that? <laughs> to tidy it up. To tidy, to tidy it, up. it up. That's right. <laughs> As the, scientists, yeah. we like to be neat and tidy. <laughs> I always say to people when they, they um, if they have an exhibit in a zoo or at their home or something with an animal and they're going to make up a plaque, I say, don't put the scientific name on there. They're going to change that on you. <laughs> well, that's true. But then the trouble with a common name is what, what does it really mean? You know, here's a good example. The common dolphin. The common dolphin to me is a scientist is Delphinus Delphis. The common dolphin to maybe other people is the dolphin that they commonly see, which is basically a bottlenose dolphin. So there's pluses and minuses with both systems, yeah. Yeah, I hate the word common being in a... In a, in in a, a common name. name. Yeah. In a common name, it just doesn't Yeah, sit we well. look for alternatives. Poor thing. Like the common scaly foot, we call yeah. it the southern scaly foot. Oh, Okay. Just because, just because <laughs> it's common. Because it's demeaning, you mean? I think so. I mean, it yeah, is, yeah. Most people don't even know it exists, let alone call it common. Mm. <laughs> I think it's the common one if you're going to see one, like because the Western Hood is critically endangered. And, mm. But it's common for a scaly foot, but it's not common. Um, so, <laughs> um, there's been a few animals that have been divided up a bit, hasn't there? Like, I think feather tail gliders, maybe? Yes, feather tail gliders. Well, Okay, so recently they've gone to a division, but initially, and I'm talking maybe 80 or so years ago, they were divided. So they they were divided, and then they then they were lumped, and then they're divided. <laughs> this is science, right? <laughs> because it depends on what you're measuring, what techniques you're using um, to study animals as to whether you pull them apart or... And so with the... With the use of genetics, well, that's really changed things a lot in the last 30 or so years. But having said that, I mean, genetics doesn't always have the answers either. So Mark and I would say um, the combination of morphology or what an animal looks like and genetics is probably, and maybe some behavior in there too, is really the best way to work out whether you've got a species or not. So is that reclassification increased or decreased? Australian it's animals. split. It's split them, so it's given us more. Given more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Maybe a few too many sometimes. <laughs> you didn't hear me say that, did you? <laughs> no one did. The splitters and the lumpers. So the splitters are the ones who like to make more species, and the lumpers are the ones who like to put them together. What are you, Kath? <laughs> I think I'd probably tend to be a little bit on the lumping side, but you know, I'm, I'm not against new species being described. But to me, sometimes one of the problems with describing new species is that it's it's a bit of a tick. It's a bit of a like, oh, aren't I good? <laughs> I've got a new species. Tick. <laughs> You know, that would only happen a few times. And almost most of the time, people would be legitimate in describing a new species. Could that potentially up our um, extinction rates by doing that? No, it'll it'll decrease because it'll be a proportion. Um, So if we... Oh, no. Hmm. Well, it it might it could go either way. Could go, yeah. It could go either way, yeah. Mm. Yeah, because I think we we had Graham on the show, Graham Midland. Midland, okay. Uh, and he obviously looks at sub fossils, and 
he discovered a new hopping mouse just from the jawbone. Yeah, well, from the from the skull. Was it yeah. the skull? The skull. Yeah. So that, and of course, he discovered it well after it become extinct. Yeah. So that kind of increased that extinction rate, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's what I think. That's where my thought was then. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. That's probably where that. It's came from it's bizarre mm. now you're in this position where you must get lots of cryptozoological kind of phone calls like i saw a big cat i saw a striped animal i saw a platypus in the sturt river um so where are those oh, another platypus, <laughs> another platypus <laughs> in the in sturt river i can um mark parnell saw that so you know mark he's the green senator for south australia I'm pretty sure that was a platypus, but it probably wasn't a platypus of the original populations that were in South Australia before whitey humans came here. Um, it might have come from Warrawong, maybe. Yep. They, Who knows? They can climb mm. fences. <laughs> well, I saw a, um, an eastern quoll at Scott Creek Conservation Park mm-hmm. nearly 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. would have obviously have come from there mm-hmm. too. Mm-hmm. And it's not out of the question, is it? Because it would get into the river system that would go through Sturt Gorge fairly mm-hmm. easily, wouldn't it? Mm-hmm. I, I think, think so. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. Mm-hmm. There's, and there's a lot of sightings of platypus, but who's to say there's a lot of sightings of a lot of things? Yeah, well, some of those sightings could be water rats, but, I mean, who do you know? I mean, how do you know, so you're not, who do you know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, it but, is true. But you asked about something now. What Thylacines, was the original big, question? Big oh, cats. Yep. <laughs> oh, that's a tricky one. So, as a mammalogist at a state government institution, I am cautious about um, being either way because you never know when something might be there. Highly unlikely. But it would be arrogant, I think, to say there is no chance. So, and also because I have to be careful not to upset people, because that's part of my government job is not to be rude and and condescending. You know, it's to to listen to what people have to say, and people are sometimes extremely sensitive about this because they're convinced that they've seen whatever it might be. Have you seen any of the footage or photographs that, mm-hmm. are, that are around the place? I have, and I've had a bit to do with one of the main people involved, um, and he's been in a couple of times. Um, but when I look at the videos, I don't see anything that tells me it's a, you know, that it is exactly a thylacine, because there's not enough information there for me to, to say. Many years ago, somebody said they saw a brush-tailed fascigal in the Adelaide Hills. Did anything ever come of that? Okay, the fascigal. We had one escapee fascigal turn up. I can't remember the name of the road. So it was a road kill 20 years ago, maybe. Um, and when we looked into it, because I thought, oh, you know, is this, is this the wild one still here? And when we looked into it, there was a chap not far away who had gills in captivity, and one of them had escaped not long before that. So at least we were able to, to put that together. Because another big bugbear I have is that people keeping animals, native animals, should, in my opinion, be um, required to mark in some way those, whether it's a microchip or whatever, so that if we get dead ones, 
we know that it's captive. It's not an original population. That's a very that's, good idea. Yeah, that's a, that's never idea. Heard that well, we talk quite a lot of keeping native animals as pets. Yeah. And um, yeah, that's a good thing to. Well, we've with had that. this idea. Oh, I, I or we have had this for a long time, and partly because I haven't pushed it, but even people in the environment department, I think, have tried to do something and got nowhere. Mm-hmm. I suspect that the the keeping lobby is pretty pretty powerful, pretty strong, and it would be difficult for them to do this. Yeah, that's a very, I mean, there's a lot of carp. I mean, snake catchers are always catching carpet pythons that obviously are escape pets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, that's a great idea. Um, is there any really interesting projects, I'm sure there is, going on at the moment that you're involved in that you're allowed to share with us? Um, well, I have a PhD student who's been working on her PhD for quite a long time. Her other supervisor is at, at um, University of Zurich in Switzerland. So I'm a co-supervisor. She's looking at the taxonomy of bottlenose dolphins all around Australia because there's been this controversy for quite a while are there two species or three so there's pretty well two recognized ones until about eight or nine years ago when somebody described another one from Victoria called the Barunan dolphin it was published and so therefore accepted at least within part of the scientific community but the International Marine Mammal Society um, and many others do not accept this as a valid species uh, for various reasons. So the people describing this looked at kind of isolated um, comparisons and not very many animals. So the best thing to do was to look at all the dolphins from all around Australia that were in museums or that there were genetic, there was genetic material from live animals. So it's taken Maria quite a long time to do this, but it's just coming to fruition now and it looks pretty strongly like from a genetic and a a morphological point of view that there are two species, not three. There may be within one of those two a little subset that is a bit different. so this is, it's sounding a bit esoteric, isn't it? Well, who cares how many bottlenose dolphins you might say in, in Australia? But of course it matters because if that species that was named from Victoria is a real species, then it's very limited distribution, very small numbers, and therefore it would be rated quite highly in the endangered species sort of yeah. Whatever the EPBC Act, <laughs> yep. so there's a there's a, a way of um, rating species by their endangerment or their their how much threatened they are. So that's pretty good for Maria to look at all of these and get a bigger picture rather than just a little picture of what might be happening in one part of the country. Mm, so that is if that is a threatened um, animal, that could then be a a reason to protect the entire environment where that animal is found. Yeah, but it's looking like it isn't. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so the one that was named in 2011 looks from Maria's research of a, a much bigger area to be not um, a real, not a recognised species. Okay. It's, it's within one of the other ones. 
Mm. Okay. Um, so you have all the um, specimens as we've been talking about. So you've got things that were here when Europeans first came here, which are no longer in the wild, like pig-footed bandicoots. And yeah. We haven't got everything, though. No? Because a lot of the early things went to the UK or Germany. Oh. Mm. So we don't have everything. We don't have um, a long-tailed hopping mouse, I don't think. Yeah, so th- there are some things that we're missing. Okay. And are you also in charge of any megafaunal remains too, things that were around 10, 20, 30,000 years ago? Like... No, that's in paleontology, so fossils. Okay. Whereas Graham Medlin's work on the subfossils, he's a part of the mammal section. Okay. Okay. So, but that's more recent. That's you're dealing with maybe hundreds or possibly a, a few thousand years old. Some of that material. Yeah. Okay. Um, do you keep any native animals as pets? No. <laughs> but I have a cat. You have a cat. <laughs> I well, have cat, a cat. Cats are beautiful. That's where that talk <laughs> came from. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> There's no judgment. Very little judgment. <laughs> um, so I have chickens. Oh yeah, there you go. Well, mm-hmm. that's something practical. But what? But my my partner is a, um, a very good ornithologist. Is that, yeah, it's Graham, Graham Carpenter, yeah, yeah. and um, so we are thrilled by visits from all kinds of birds. They're not kept in cages, but they're in our garden. The best way to see them. Yeah. That's what, I mean, I've got native animals because I go to schools and talk about them but if I didn't have this business I wouldn't have any of them I would probably have a dog and native bush um, yeah so the best that's what I always say to kids you want to you want a lizard yeah put some habitat and you can, yeah um, yeah we, that's we a great idea there. actually mm. yeah yeah um oh, so how's Graham going what's he doing <laughs> he's going well yeah. <laughs> yeah he's still with the vegetation management group at Department for Environment and Water. He's all, he's extremely knowledgeable. He's a yeah. great, excellent bird, eh? Yeah. Mm. He's still a bird secretary for the SAOA, the South Australian Ornithological Association. Okay. Yeah. Still, we do, we do lots of trips together, looking at birds and stuff. Yeah. So, you, so you get out in the field? I do. We try and get out once, at least once a year, for me anyway. He's out a lot more than I am. Um just on a camping trip to somewhere in the arid zone for 10 days or so because it's so peaceful and so lovely to just go look at birds. That's awesome. I take my little traps and things sometimes too. (laughs) See what's out there. See what's out there. Is there any species that you suspect may still be lingering somewhere in some corner of the country that we don't know about? I wouldn't be surprised if um, Caliprimnus... That's the rat kangaroo, one of the rat kangaroos. Gosh, isn't that terrible? I'm terrible on common names. Um, The desert 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 rat rat kangaroo, kangaroo. yeah, Caliprimnus. I wouldn't be surprised if it isn't there somewhere in the northeast, but there's been a few very interesting sightings in the last 10 or so years, but one of them I tried to chase up, actually, because we were going to be up there anyway, and I wasn't allowed on the property. Ah, sometimes landholders have obscure things that are endangered and they don't want people... Well, I'm not sure that they knew about this. They were just really toey about... So I didn't argue. Bunch of greenies going on their property. Mm -hmm. Yeah, They could be growing anything on there. That's right, having a cat owner on your property. (laughs) (laughs) 
So there you go, the Calais Crunch. We just saw one, actually. They've got a stuffed one next door. We had a look at the desert rat kangaroo. A stuffed one next yeah. door? Yeah. And oh, you the, mean in the, in, in, the, in the main part of the museum? Yeah. Yeah, it's, under yeah. The, it's in the extinctions. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. But you see, if we found it again, we could take it out of there. <laughs> That'd be good. Yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah, that would be great. Calopremnus. Um, Kath, I know you've got a lot of stuff on at the moment and we really appreciate you giving us your time. Is there anything that you would like to add? Words of wisdom, no pressure. <laughs> well, it'd be very nice to see what we do at the museum keep going. The collect I'm sure the collections will keep going. I have no worries there. But just to have that after promoting especially the marine mammal collection, which is by far the best in the country, biggest and best, it would be nice to have that continue. As I say, the collections will be there and will be looked after um, by the museum, but it's, it's nice to have somebody out there after I retire um, to keep it going. And I think anything, whether it's a collection or you know, other things that people do, it needs a person to promote it. I think the personal thing is much more important than anybody ever wants to realize these days. They think that they can, you know, have computers do everything, and, but it's the personal touch. People talking to each other or, I don't know, showing a lot of people around. So we do show a lot of people around our marine mammal facility and people are pretty wowed by it. I hope it continues and, and having the expertise here and the people as a, as a hub where they, like we were talking about with Mark, where they, they share the knowledge even just at the yeah. water court, so to speak. Mm. Um, super important. And having young researchers come in and having you guys accessible, amazingly important. Can't mm. be, yeah, yeah, can't be undervalued. I thought of something else. Yeah. I'm a female, obviously. <laughs> and it's so important for young women to see senior scientists doing their thing because that's a role model to them and even though we have improved greatly in our um, the way that we've looked at the male-female um, relationships in working lives over the years I think there's still a way to go and um, I think it's important to have senior women scientists within government within the public eye so that kids in school or preschool get to see that it is possible for them to do it. That's a very good point too. Yeah. Thank you for that. Kath, thank you very much for your time. Always a pleasure to catch up with you. And guys, thank you for listening. Yeah.